morning. It is indeed a great privilege to be able to stand before you today, and I thank uh, the uh, leadership of this church, uh, especially Brian, for giving me this great privilege. So I often think of how God puts things together for us and bringing us full circle in lots of different ways. And, and uh, our ministry with uh, the international students is one, one example of that. But most recently, uh, uh, we uh, were at a uh, church in Lynn, Massachusetts, which was our, our church that we helped uh, plant there. And the pastor had died, and I was asked to do the next uh, Sunday morning. So I had, to, uh, I had to confess that I was pretty rusty in Khmer, and uh, I told them, well, my tongue is pretty hard today because it's just not very practiced. So, but it was wonderful to, to be with them and to share with them and, to, and bring comfort and condolences to the, to the congregation uh, who had lost their pastor and our dear friend as well. So anyhow, uh, today, and actually, I want to say one more thing. This was kind of a dry run for me. I actually spoke from Joshua 1 and 3 because their Moses that I typified as their pastor as Moses had died. And the pastor was uh, most gracious, most humble, in a similar manner, of course, Moses more, more so, but a very humble man and a very loved man. And so I said, now you need a Joshua. And who will be your Joshua? And I said, I think in the midst of this congregation today, there is a Joshua. And indeed, the youth pastor uh, did preach the last, uh, last Sunday, and I think he's going to be that Joshua. Okay, amen. I'm being rebellious and using this microphone here. I don't like encumbrances around my head. And, and I also, I hope I'm not uh, being uh, you know, too casual by having my hoodie on here. Uh, it's cold. <laughs> okay, so I don't want to take it off. Okay, would you play for, pray for me, please? Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord God, indeed you are a mighty God, and there's no one like you. And I pray, Lord, that we might see that in a, in a new and fresh way today, that you are mighty and powerful, and yet you are loving and kind, and you, you want to lead your people as you led the people across the Jordan, that we might know that there might be obstacles in our way, but Lord, you will lead us. So thank you for your gracious leadership. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Approximately 10 a.m., July 25, 2014. Susan and I had just left a wonderful visit with our daughter, Rachel, and left uh, Joshua behind for a longer visit. So we're on the road, and uh, we have a four-hour drive ahead of us. The sky is a little bit interesting. It actually gets darker, and it really looms as we get closer to I-70. So about the time we get on I-70, the sky had become very black. Suddenly, we hit really heavy rain. Our wipers are running at highest speed, and we decide, okay, this is ridiculous. We're gonna, we can't fight this rain. Let's get off. So we get off, we waited out for about 20 minutes, and the rain slowed down to a shower, and then we get back on the road. But within minutes, we're in the same downpour. Suddenly, our car is swerving left and right and right and left and backwards. 
and we're no longer in control. What do we do? I'm out of control. I can't do anything. We were turned completely around, going backwards, and in front of us was a red car. We both agreed it was a red car later, as we thought about it. We were head on with this car coming, and we were going backwards. Seconds later, we're sliding down the side of the road onto a bank, and we come to a smooth stop in the grass. Did that really happen? <laughs> yes, it really happened. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. We sat there and read Psalm 91, which talks about, and it was so relevant, God is our refuge. He was our refuge that day. We hadn't hit any vehicles. We hadn't hit any cars. We hadn't caused any accidents. Hydroplaning was all about a water barrier between us and the solid pavement. God removed the effects of that very thin water barrier. Here today, we see how God removed a much bigger water barrier, the flooding Jordan River. God, indeed, is our barrier breaker. God is our barrier breaker. So, water is very prominent in salvation history, God, uh, in, for God's people no less. So water is actually presented to us in Scripture both in a positive way and in a very negative way as a refreshing substance for us and then also as an obstacle. The great news, however, is that the Word of God is that God, our living God, is our barrier breaker. No barrier or obstacle will prevent God from working out his purposes for his people or for the whole of creation. Now, today we actually read uh, uh, Joshua 3 already, but I want to reread. I want to reread two verses again to make a point. The great, two great statements in this, in this uh, chapter are verses 11 and 13. See, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. And verse 13, as soon as the priest who carried the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and sent up in a heap. Now very connected with this is that the proclamation of God's power is seen in the ark, which is mentioned eight times. Did you hear me say eight? Yes, you did. The ark stands for the presence of the covenant-making God, the living God who is with his people. Its contents symbolize the, the, uh, the covenant that God had made with them. Not only so, the ark symbolizes God as king. Therefore, the king, the king of all the earth is going to lead his people into the promised land. All that should make it clear that God is the true hero of this story. And if you remember nothing else today, you remembered the most important part. God is the true hero. We're going to see more of this. So, okay, before we look at more details, we do, we do realize, we need to realize that this story is not a primarily, therefore, about Joshua, as a particular song would have it. 
You may talk about the men of Gideon, you may talk about the men of Saul, but there's none like good old Joshua at the Battle of Jericho. <laughs> okay, that'll be the end of my singing career. <laughs> at the same time, there are many heroes in the great chapter of, like Hebrews 11, for example. So today we take a deeper dive and look at the faithful and heroic life of Joshua. He was the former aide of, of Moses, a tested warrior. Do you remember he fought the Amalekites? Yes. He believed the promise of God that God would give the Israelites a land of their own. Joshua is a towering person. Scripture seems to present Joshua as the second Moses. Second Moses. So let's observe some more parallels between Moses and Joshua. God was with Moses, and he will be with Joshua. Moses sent out spies, recall, into the promised land. Joshua all sent out spies. There are multiple usages of the uh, term Passover in the lives of both Moses and Joshua. The people crossed the Red Sea and the Jordan on dry land in both cases. And the most important parallel of all, I believe, is what God accomplished. Glory for his name. But both Moses and Joshua are prominent in Scripture because they're God's servants. That's what the Bible really has us to focus on. The many stories that, that it really is God who is the hero. Now, here's the way I see this narrative laid out. I hope you see the element of suspense and drama as one part goes to the next part. And then finally, the great event is the actual crossing of Jordan. So the outline goes like this. One to six, Joshua and leaders prepare to lay claim to the promised land. God begins to exalt Joshua to lead the claim. God is the ultimate hero and authority to lay claim for them, then God delivers on his promise to lay claim. Okay, verse 1. Here I know at least, or, or verse 1 to 6 actually, here I know at least two important themes that will be played out in these verses. Okay, Joshua as the man of God. And then the people must consecrate themselves before God's holy leadership. Verse 1, Joshua arises early in the morning. It's implied that he leads the people to the edge of the Jordan. You can be sure that Joshua is speaking with the Lord early in the morning about this great day that's about to happen in his life. Joshua is no doubt grateful for God, for the spirit of wisdom that was placed on him through the laying of hands uh, of, Mo of Moses on his, on, his, on his head. You can be sure that uh, so, sorry, uh, he is grateful that God has promised to be with him. He reflects on God's encouragements to be strong and courageous. So, the living God had prepared his man. But, we will, but he will need much courage, much wisdom to lead the people who are prone to fear, prone to be disagreeable, prone to be unbelieving. How 
will they react when they see the rushing water up to the brink of the Jordan? Will they trust that Joshua knows what he's doing? Here's where, we, again, we see the element of suspense. Joshua had seen the mighty acts of God when the people crossed the Red Sea, but these people had not. They knew the story. They knew the story, but they had not been eyewitnesses. Joshua and Caleb are the only surviving Israelites to have seen the great Red Sea crossing. Verse, verse 2, after three days, men, the men and women and children are encamped by the river. Now, imagine, each morning, they get up, the river is still swollen, just like the day before. It shows no signs of subsiding. Yeah, the people have been told they will cross it. At night, certainly, they hear the rushing water. The water's current may have made a mist in the air. Can you imagine their hearts beating faster and wondering how will they ever cross this Jordan River? Again, do you see the element of suspense? Then, at the end of three days, it's implied that Joshua gives the orders to the officers to go through the camp, tell them what to do. Verse 3. Essentially, he says, keep your eyes on the ark, Joshua tells them. You are to follow when the priests begin to move toward the river. Okay, what's the significance of this? Clearly, the ark, as I mentioned before and alluded to before, represents God's presence in, coveting, in his coveting presence. It's not the cloud that they followed in the wilderness. The ark means that God is going personally to lead them across the river. They must, however, keep their eyes of faith on that ark. At the same time, they must stay back, how far? 200 cubits, which is about 1,000 yards. Why? Because God is a holy God. He is at this point like a mighty warrior whom the soldiers greatly revere, but dare not call him buddy-buddy. It's good that we keep that perspective, brothers and sisters. While God invites him to call uh, him Father, but it's only, why? Only because in Jesus, what God has done through Jesus, that we can now confidently call God Father. Let's not be lax and unthinking and saying, Jesus is my homeboy. No, no, that will not do. Of course, Jesus is our friend, but he's not our homeboy, all right? I hope no one <laughs> has ever said that, and uh, it, it, you're reflecting, oh my, I really blew that up. Okay, verse 5, Joshua tells the people to consecrate themselves. That would be before the ark begins to move. Their consecration was probably... Uh, some sort of outward ceremony of some kind, but every outward ceremony in the Old Testament was meant to lay it to heart. And so, in this way, too, always the people were to consider the outward signs to be an inward attitude. But why? Why must, the con why must they consecrate themselves now? Because God is going to do astounding, 
amazing things among them. So God's people need to be holy participants. And consecrating themselves helps them to remember God's mighty acts, mighty miracles. Because God's people were commanded to celebrate God's wondrous works down through the ages. For example, and there are many, Psalm uh, 40, verse 5. Let me just read that really quickly. Psalm 40, verse 5. Many, Lord my God, are the wonders you have done, the things you plan for us. None can compare with you were I to speak and tell of your deeds. There would be too many to declare. There are many verses very similar to this verse. Now, secondly, about consecrating, the people need to consecrate themselves to be prepared to cross the Jordan in unity and in cooperation with God's orders. So it's crucial that they all move forward in faith to cross the Jordan. Any number of people could panic and turn aside and turn back. It would be quite a horrible panic. Perhaps Joshua had this in the back of his mind. What if the people panic? Here again, we see the element of suspense. Now, of course, we're speculating a little bit here, right? Okay. But I think it's, it's legitimate to think about, you know, well, well, how might Joshua felt here? Okay. And my brother Peter will say, don't try to, uh, or whatever, let the word speak for itself. Okay. But I do think it's, it's, a, it's okay. And I'm going to be rebellious if it's, if it's a rebellion or whatever. Uh, it's part of my nature, actually. <laughs> I'm quite rebellious. Um, but I do see that, that uh, probably, um, you know, there's something going on with, with Joshua. He's a human being, right? Okay. You know, suspense and anxiety are close cousins. Close cousins. Pastors have to guard against anxiety and uh, being anxious. And, you know, because, you know, a pastor may wonder, well, how will the people take this passage or the way I expound this passage, or it's pretty, maybe pretty blunt for how they feel about it. But let's not give our pastor <laughs> any reason to be, to be anxious by praising him for boldly expounding God's word, okay? Okay, verse 6. Everyone is cooperating, the priests, the people, the leaders. It's a wonderful picture of unity in anticipation of what God is going to do in their midst. So it behooves us to seek unity because we are united in Christ. And so we must express that unity when we come together in anticipation of what God would do in our midst or in any special occasion that we might have together. Let us be in unity in prayer that God will want to do amazing things. Does he want to do amazing things? Do we believe that God does want to do amazing things? Let's seek for a unified spirit to seek our living covenant God to do many things. Okay, next section. God begins to exalt Joshua to lead the claim. God has already encouraged Joshua many times to be strong in his faith because the spirit of wisdom is on him also. Now, now, God gives Joshua an amazing and empowering word. Listen, 
God will exalt him. Will exalt him before the people. God will make jo uh, Joshua seem really great before the eyes of the people. Here's where I see another parallel between Moses and Joshua. God had exalted Moses before the people, at, and we see that uh, kind of summarized at the end of Deuteronomy uh, chapter 34, 9 to 12. Let me just read that real quick. Now Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom, because Moses had laid his hands on him. So the Israelites listened to him and did what the Lord had commanded Moses. Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his officials and to his whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of Israel. So in a real sense, God is sharing some of his glory with Joshua. That's a wow. Is that not a wow? He's sharing some of his glory. But you know what's an even greater, uh, even greater wow? Jesus shared some of his glory with his disciples. John 17, 22, Jesus says, I have given my glory to my disciples. You know, Jesus wills to give some of his glory to his faithful people, to make us feel uh, great before others. Not that we want to feel great, but it just works that way, I think. We all desire to be significant, but if we seek to be significant in our own ways, uh, it will be frustrating and pretty disappointing. God exalted Joshua because he, of his servant heart and because he trusted God's leadership. So if you want to be great, Jesus said, learn to be a servant of all. Verse 8, Joshua tells the priests that when they reach the river's edge, they are to stand in the river. That is, we, we understand to stand at the very edge of the river. This is that very important first step of faith, the initial planting of the feet in the water. So importantly, Joshua only tells the priests this much about God's full plan. Joshua is given the authority to give the go orders. But what will happen next? Here's another feature of the element of suspense. Verses 9 to 13. Verse 9, Joshua summons all the people to hear what God wants them to know. First, first of all, he reminds them that the living God is among them. Secondly, the goal is to take claim of the land away from the peoples on the other side of that raging river. Thirdly, it is the living God, Yahweh himself, who will go before them, symbolized by the ark. They are to understand that the Lord of all the earth has the authority to do that because he is the God of all the earth. Fourthly, they are to organize themselves for later by choosing 12 men from each tribe. And then fifthly, in verse 13, now Joshua announces the coming miracle, but he doesn't give a clear picture 
of what it will look like. Only that water upstream will stand up in a single heap. How? Where will the heap be heaped? Where will the heap be heaped? Joshua only tells the people that when the priest carrying the ark set foot in the river, the river will stand up in a heap. Here is where Joshua becomes great in the eyes of the people because the people will know that God is with Joshua by what God does. So God has revealed to Joshua what God, God has uh, planned to do, and God, uh, Joshua is trusting that divine plan. Again, the feeling of suspense. Now, we must not skip over verse 10, though I would really like to. I really want to avoid this verse. But because it represents a very sobering point of theology about God's holiness, as we know, the people of Jericho had heard about the mighty acts of God that he had done against the earth uh, in the, the Egyptian people and the uber miracle, uber miracle of the crossing of the Red Sea and the death of Pharaoh's army. So these people in Canaan had no doubt heard about that. So based on what they had heard, the people should repent, but they don't. So God, uh, so now sadly, now sadly, the time of iniquity is full. The peoples are viewed in, viewed as seven in, in, in number, which might symbolize the fullness of evil. And God commands that they all be driven out of the land. God has the only legitimate, legitimate authority to claim the promised land because the living God is God of all the earth. Abraham Kuyper once said, God has inscribed over the whole universe one word. Mine. Brothers and sisters, we cannot avoid the fact that God will not forever be merciful, waiting on the unbeliever to repent of their sinful nature. All right, back to Jordan. Back to the Jordan. Verses four, uh, 14 to 17. So God delivers on his promise to lay claim to the promised land. All right, the first thing to observe here is of great importance. It is not the priests who are bold or special or heroes. It's the ark on which the presence of the living Lord resides. So it is God himself who is going forward ahead of them. Yahweh is the one who opens the way forward to the river. But what about that river? What about that river? It's a front stage. But God confronts the water obstacle first. But it's the feet of the priest that must trust that God will really, really open the way forward. Now, the text does economize on the details. So we might visualize the scene differently. I think we can avoid forming a mental picture as we think about this story. But what's most important here is that faith is involved at every step. The text says as soon as the feet of the priest touched the water's edge, the water upstream stopped flowing and it piled up, way upstream near the town of Adam. 
So the water began to pile up at a place where the priests and the people do not see it piling. Here is where I see the element of faith again, because the water from the Adam pile kept flowing down to the crossing point. The people had to wait till the water passed. I do think that here is where we see a parallel with the Red Sea. In Exodus 14, 21 to 22, you might be reminded that God caused a strong wind to drive back the sea until there was a dry passage. And that took time for the wind to drive back the sea. So the language strongly implies that there was a process that the people had to wait on. And therefore, faith was a crucial element of that experience. Now, all right, I agree that there are other ways of visualizing what happened. But the point is not how long, uh, the point is that not long, not long, after the priests put the soles of their feet in the rushing water, the whole company of Israel, about a million people, crossed on a dry river bed. It might have been an hour before the water subsided, or minutes, or seconds. The point is not the process. The point is that they crossed over on uh, dry land. So we can say that for sure, for, with great assurance. That, that riverbed was dry, just minutes or an hour or short, shorter time before the rushing water uh, had, had been rushing by. So phase one, phase one is completed through Yahweh's mighty power. Phase two will be to conquer the land. Let's notice one more thing about the priest. How long do you suppose they stood in the river, in the middle of the river? No doubt it was a very long day because the whole nation had crossed over while they held up the ark. So oftentimes in ministry, only, we're only successful if we persevere and sometimes in painful perseverance. Think about our brothers and sisters in other countries who, per, who are persevering under great oppression and, 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 uh, and scrutiny and, and even worse. Let's ponder together the significance of this great story for our time. The Jordan was a surprise obstacle to the Israelites in their journey to the Promised Land. But God had a plan. All along, he had a plan. They would overcome every obstacle and barrier to get there. There's no maybe in God's plan for his people. He will work out his purposes for us, but it may require our active participation. We've all had obstacles to overcome. The Jordan is an obstacle to further progress. There was a lot of water to get across. It was at flood stage. Normally the river was a minor stream, not when they arrived. So perhaps you say, well, why didn't God get them to the Jordan before flood stage? I mean, it would have been easy to cross at a time when there wasn't a flood stage, perhaps. No, that won't do. Why? Because a full 40 years must elapse before they leave the wilderness. But most importantly, God has designed this time for them so that the glory of God, so that, sorry, so that, the, so that God will get the glory. So the people will once again see his power. 
so they will have stories to tell in the future and to their, to their grandchildren and children. What has God done in your upstream Jordan? What has God done in your downstream Jordan? What testimony uh, do we have to bring attention and renown and glory to God? Who would profit by you sharing that with someone else about your upstream story, how God enabled you to cross over a barrier? What would God have us to claim? For those of us who are followers of Christ, we are invited, invited to claim many, many wonderful privileges. Mercy when we sin, and grace when we can't do what we're supposed to do. And access to the Holy Father, to the throne of God. We can claim favor with people by asking God to give us favor. And most wonderfully, we have that audience with the king of the universe. If you're not sure about your relationship with God, I invite you to claim the offer of salvation. I suspect most of our, uh, us are believers in here, but in case you're not, there is one, one of us, just one, God has opened the way for you to enter into a new land of freedom from the penalty of sin and to enjoy a life that has meaning and purpose. Jesus endured the suffering of life in this broken world, but he never succumbed to evil. Rather, he took our place and my place on the cross and rose from the grave to secure our salvation, to secure your salvation before God in heaven. Would you claim that for yourself today if you're not a believer? But what would God have us to claim as a congregation? You know, the Israelites claimed a whole new land. What would it look like if we claimed our community as if it were a new land of opportunity? What will we do? What will we do, brothers and sisters, if we are earnest and passionate about that? Would we organize special prayer? Would we invite people to, to a special event? What would we do? Just to recap, as a congregation, what would we do if God says, I want you to lay claim to New Concord again, as if it was a new land? What would we do? Let's pray. Mighty God, thank you for your mighty acts and that you continue to do in our lives as well to remove those barriers and those obstacles to progress in our Christian life. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your faithfulness to us that we are so utterly indebted to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.